Welcome to Growing Through Grief. I'm your host, Diana Curtis. Growing Through Grief is a weekly sprinkle of education and inspiration to help you take action that leads to personal freedom and greatness. I share powerful conversations with grief experts, spiritual advisors, and other courageous souls in this transformational podcast. I believe with the right support and the power of community, you can eliminate unnecessary prolonged grief. I'm here to teach you how to normalize, recognize, and use grief as a growth tool. I've been a champion for growth for decades since the loss of my mother. Together, we are growing. I'll give you weekly tips and small steps that will move the needle forward so that you are experiencing a healthy inner relationship with yourself. Let's get started. So hello, beautiful souls. Welcome back to the Growing Through Grief podcast. I'm your host, Diana Curtis. So today we are diving right into the conversation. You already know that is our aim to give you some nuggets, some tools that will help you continue to grow and expand into your greatest self. So today is no different. I have another beautiful soul with me and he's going to share, yeah, just hold on. He's going to share some phenomenal tips and nuggets for you. So let me just introduce you to Terry Tucker. Terry is an international podcast guest and he speaks on topics related to motivation, self-development and mental health. And we all know that this is May the month of mental health. So many reasons to talk about mental health. He has a business administration degree from Cynodale where he played NCAA Division College Foot Basketball, a master's degree from Boston University, and he has also been a marketing executive, a hospital administrator, and an undercover narcotics investigator, and a SWAT team hostage negotiator. Can't wait to hear more about that. A high school basketball coach, a business owner, a motivational speaker. And for the past 10 years, Terry has been a cancer warrior. He's also the author of Sustainable Excellence, 10 Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. Terry has also been featured in Authority, Global Thrive, and Human Capital Leadership Magazines. He and his wife have lived all over the United States and currently resides in Colorado with their Wheaton, Terry, Maggie. And in 2019, he started a website motivation a check to help others find and leave their uncommon and extraordinary lives. Welcome, Terry. Well, thanks, Diana. I'm looking forward to talking with you today. Yes. Thank you for saying yes. So I'm just curious, when you heard me reflect back to you who you are, what came up for you? Because I always get surprised when the hosts introduce me and say what's true about me, but for some reason I get a little shocked. What what came up for you? I'm just curious. Yeah, I, I sort of laugh when you go through all that. I'm like, gosh, one of these days I got to figure out what I'm going to do when I grow up, you know, kind of thing. So 
you know, I, I have had a very diverse career uh, professionally, but it's all been, you know, I, I, I think sort of God works in mysterious ways, you know, to kind of put you where you're supposed to be for a period of time. And then you learn what you're supposed to learn. You learn the lesson. And then now it's time to move on to learn another lesson. So, yeah, while my career is very diverse, it's certainly something that I'm proud of and that I, that I learned a lot along the way. Yes, beautiful, beautiful. You reminded me of our um, prior conversation where we talked about you, some of your most compelling grief and losses, your father, your grandmother, and specifically your father who had these plans for your life. And I don't recall if you said you went with what father, your dad wanted or you kind of struck out on your own. But before you did that, you spent some time helping your mother take care of your father. Share with us a little bit more about that. Yeah, you know, I, I graduated from college and was all, you know, sort of set to make my mark on the world with my newly obtained business administration degree. I was actually the first person in my family to graduate from college but then I, you know, I graduate, I'm all ready to, you know, make my mark. And then I, I move home to find a job. And it turns out my father and my grandmother, shortly after I graduated, are now both dying of different forms of cancer. I mean, literally, they're in the rooms next to each other in our house. And so I had a choice. I mean, I always felt my, my passion, my purpose, my why, whatever you want to call it, was to follow in my grandfather's footsteps and go into law enforcement. But then my father didn't want that. My father's like, you know, you're going to go to college. You're going to major in business. You're going to get out, get a great job, get married, have two. I mean, my father had my entire life planned out, but it was the life my father wanted me to live. So I had a choice when I graduated. I, I could have said, sorry, dad, I'm going to blaze my own trail. I got to do my own thing. Or out of love and respect for you, I will go into business. I will do what you want me to do. And that's exactly what I did. I my first two jobs, if you look at my resume, were in the marketing department at Wendy's, the, the hamburger chain in their corporate headquarters. And then I was a hospital administrator. And I sort of joke. I did what every good son did. I waited till my father passed away. And, and then I followed my own dreams. And so I waited. I was a 37-year-old rookie police officer with the Cincinnati Police Department, which by most accounts is pretty old to be getting into that line of work. But it was that was my passion. That was what I knew I was supposed to do. It was just a matter of timing as to when I did it. Yes, yes, beautiful. I'm curious what it felt like or what were some of those challenges being a provider or taking care of your mom who was taking care of your father and a grandmother. This was before you turned 37, right? Oh, you were in your 30s. Oh, yeah. This was yeah. This was right after college. Yeah. Yeah. How did you get through all of that? I, I think, you know, my parents certainly laid the foundation for, uh, I don't have any sisters. It, it, I have two other brothers. I am the oldest of, of the three of us. The youngest one was in high school when my dad and my grandmother, our grandmother was dying. Uh, the middle one was off at college at, at the time. So, it was, you know, my parents laid the foundation for what family was all about, you know, loving each other, caring about each other, supporting each other, being there for each other. And so, you know, th there was no doubt in my mind that 
I was going to be there to take care of my father and my grandmother. My my parents had been there for my brothers and I had taken care of us. They, they sort of did the divide and conquer parenting. We were all athletes. We all went to college and played basketball. My my youngest brother played baseball. And, and so my parents did divide and conquer parenting. You know, Terry's got a game over here. Dad will go to that. Larry's got a practice over here. Mom will go to that. So we were always running. But the, the core of our family was love, care, and support. And so when my dad got sick, when my grandmother got sick, there was no doubt that I, I didn't care if it took 10 years of putting my life on hold. I was going to be there to help my father, to help my mother, to help my grandmother. And so it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't easy, but it wasn't a hard decision to make because of the way our parents had raised us and taught us the importance of family. Yeah. Yeah. What a great honor to be able to honor your parents like that. So that takes me into one of the things I said while introducing you was that for the past 10 years, you have been a cancer warrior. Now, I have to admit, I've never really heard anyone put it that way. And when I sort of dissected the word warrior, one thing came up, maybe the root word war. Yeah, the war, the things that may have be happening inside, but also because I know that you have a very positive spin on life. So I'm curious about both sides, the both and. The war, you know, the inner turmoil of realizing you have cancer, and how you stay in this positive state of being all the time. Yeah, that's those are kind of the $2 million questions, aren't they? You know, in, in a lot of ways. I, I guess maybe just to give a, a quick background, I, I have a rare form of melanoma that appeared on the bottom of my foot back in 2012. And, you know, I was at the time, I was a, a girls' high school basketball coach in Texas. And you know, when I, I had this callus break open on the bottom of my foot and initially didn't give it much thought because as a coach, you're on your feet a lot. But after a few weeks of it not healing, I made an appointment and went to see a, a podiatrist, a foot doctor friend of mine. And he took an x-ray and he said, Terry, I think you have a little cyst in there and I can cut it out. And he did. And he showed it to me. It was just a little gelatin sack with some white fat in it. No dark spots, no blood, nothing that gave either one of us concern, but he sent it off to pathology. And then two weeks later, I received a call from him. And as I said, he was a friend of mine. And the more difficulty he was having explaining to me what was going on, the more frightened I was becoming. Until finally, he just laid it out for me. He said, Terry, I've been a doctor for 25 years. I have never seen this form of cancer. You have this rare form of melanoma that appears on the bottom of the feet or the palms of the hands. And I remember when he told me that, I was like, wait a minute. No, no, no. You know, I mean, I think I went through all the stages of, of grief, uh, you know, at that time. It, first, it was denial. It's like, well, this you, you made a mistake or this possibly can't be happening to me. And, you know, and then you get mad or frustrated and then you sort of bargain with God and then you kind of get down and depressed. And then you reach a point, and, and I've been at that point for a long time, where you're like, you know what? These are the cards that I've been dealt. I don't like these cards. I don't like the hand that I've been dealt, but I need to play this hand to the best of my ability. And I made a decision very early on in my cancer journey that I was never going to take this out on a 
on a doctor or a nurse or a therapist or anybody that was trying to help me. It wasn't their fault that I got cancer, but I, I've seen that. I've seen people that are mad and frustrated and, and they, they lash out at a nurse that's trying to care for them or they lash out at their doctor. And it was like, no, not, I'm, I'm not going to do that. It's not their fault. They're, it's just the opposite. They're trying to help me. They're trying to keep me alive. They're trying to battle this cancer within me, you know, together that, you know, it's so much in life. It's a team effort, whether it's your family or the people you work with, or, you know, if you have a, a cancer diagnosis, it's with your, your team, your healthcare team. So that's kind of, you know, what I went through when I found out. And I, I guess the way I look at it now is this, you know, I, I started playing basketball when I was nine years old and I played all the way up until I graduated from college. And that was being part of a team, you know, team sports. And I think one of the things that team sports teaches you is the importance of being part of something that's bigger than yourself. Because you realize on a team that if you don't do your job, not only do you let yourself down, but you let your teammates down, your coaches down, your fans down, et cetera. And if you think about it, the biggest team game that we all play is this game of life. So for me, the, the treatments and, and all the ugliness that happens, it, yes, it affects me, but it's about something that's much bigger than me in the hope that what's what I'm going through can help somebody down the road that I may never meet or, or, or may never know. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I love that you said this game of life you chose as opposed to a game of suffering. I also heard you say you shared that the first thing you shared was that fear came up and <laughs> fear came up. But in spite of all of that, you made the decision ahead of time that this is how I'm going to experience this journey. I'm not blaming anybody else. I may be in denial. I may be angry. I may be bargaining with God. I may even go to a state of depression. Yeah, but you made absolutely. You made the decision ahead of time of how you wanted to experience this journey. Yeah, that's beautiful. What else? Anything else around that? I I, I think that you know I, I I had a I had a nurse recently ask me uh, as as my therapy or, or my disease has progressed and my therapy has progressed with it. I have I've had my my foot amputated in two thousand and eighteen. I had my leg amputated in 2020 during the pandemic. And I had a nurse recently ask me, you know, what was it like to have your, your foot amputated and your leg amputated? And I told her, I said, it, it, it has not been easy. You know, I mean, I'm still learning almost two years after my leg amputation to, to walk with a prosthetic leg. I, I'm not doing a great job with it, but, but I'll, I'll get there. But what I told her is that cancer can take all my physical faculties, but cancer can't touch my mind, it can't touch my heart, and it can't touch my soul. And that's who I am. That's who you are. That's who the audience listening to us is. This is just a, a vessel or a house or whatever you want to call it to house who we really are. So, I, you know, I understand pain. I, I understand, you know, that, that people go through it. And, and the way I look at pain is this. We're all going to experience pain in our lives. You know, I, I mean, and it doesn't have to be cancer pain or or even any kind of an illness. It can be as simple as you break up with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or, you know, you have a fender bender on the way to the grocery store. Somebody at work gets the promotion that you believe that you deserve. Pain is inevitable. 
Suffering, on the other hand, suffering is optional. Suffering is what you do with that pain. Do you use that pain to make you a stronger and more determined individual? Or do you wallow in it and feel sorry for yourself and want other people to feel sorry for you? And don't get me wrong. I have bad days. You're looking at me right now. There's no S on my chest. I don't have a cape and fly around with magical powers. You know, I have those bad days. But when I have those days, I mean, if you think about it, those days when you're, when you're down, when you're depressed, when you're feeling sorry for yourself, those are days when you're looking inward, when, when it's all about, you know, oh, woe is me. I feel sad. I've, and what I found, at least for me, one of the best ways to get out of that is to now look outward. Who can I help? Whose life can I make a difference in? And it may not be anything big. It may just be calling up a friend or calling up somebody else I know that has cancer. Hey, how's it going today? Now, all of a sudden, I'm not focused inward. I'm focused on somebody else. And by focusing on somebody else, now I'm making a difference in their life. And all of a sudden, I don't feel as depressed or down. So I, I guess when we get to that point, and we all do, we're human beings, we all feel sorry for ourselves, we all feel down from time to time. When you get there, look outward, get outside of yourself and try to make a difference in somebody else's life. Because at least for me, that's how I, I feel a whole lot better when those times come. Yeah. Yeah. So I would like to share another perspective on the looking inward and the looking outward. Basically, where you started, as you talked about, so powerful when you said that cancer may take your limbs, your foot, your leg, but it can't take the essence of who you are. Your soul, that blueprint of your soul stays the same no matter what crisis we go through, who we lose, loss of health, loss of an individual, that blueprint, that soul blueprint is the same no matter what. And no one can take that away from us. So for me, that's the in, inward piece of staying anchored to who we really, really are. But I also love the outward approach where if we look at life as not just about ourselves. We were created to help other individuals, right? And when we do that, we're not overwhelmed with our own stuff, with our own suffering, because we're focused on helping others. Beautifully stated, beautifully stated. And you've chosen not to be a sufferer. I was on a call with someone and we were talking about suffering and I was reminded of what I was taught years ago as I deconstruct Diana, the sufferer, as I deconstruct that, my grief around loss and losing loved ones, as I deconstruct the sufferer, there can be no suffering because the sufferer no longer is suffering, right? So get in there and deconstruct it and Go through whatever process we need to go through in order to clear some of that stuff out one breath at a time. You're, you're right. And, 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 you know, and, and that's, I think, something else that's important. And you make a really good point with that. We all, I, I mean, I, I don't like the word suffering because I think it's, a, it's an optional thing, but we all sort of suffer in our own way, you know, and but, but what do we do? We, we try to compare ourselves. It's like, ooh, that person's a whole lot worse off than I am. Or you know what? I, I'm suffering a whole lot more than this person is and stuff like that. We all deal with pain in our own ways. 
And we shouldn't compare ourselves to somebody else and say, oh, they're worse off than I or they're better off than I am. I, I, I think that's you're running your race. You're, you're going down your journey. You're not going down somebody else's journey. And, and, and we do that not just with illness. You know, we're always oh, that person has more money than I am or they have a better job or they drive a nicer car. Who cares? I mean, in in the scheme of things, you know, at the end of your life, you're not going to be judged on what other people said or did or had. You're going to be judged on what you said and what you did and what you had. So I I don't get all excited when I I mean, I certainly I go to the hospital every three weeks for a clinical trial drug that I'm on. I can always find people that are worse off than I am. I can always find people who who are, quote unquote, suffering more than I am. But I don't spend a lot of time, you know, trying to compare myself. I'm on my journey and I've got to focus on my journey and everybody else has to focus on their journey as well. With the understanding that we're all in this together, that this isn't a, you know, especially I see with young people, it's like, hey, this is all about me. You know, it's like, and I always tell young people, you're unique, but I hate to tell you, you're not special. You know, you have unique gifts and talents (laughs) that I don't have, that you don't have. And that's great. And you should utilize those gifts at whatever you feel your purpose is. But this whole, hey, it's all about me and you owe me. And I don't owe you anything. And life doesn't owe you anything. And life won't give you anything. But everything you need to be successful in your life is already inside you. You just need to find it, pull it out, and use it to your advantage. And stop worrying about what somebody else has or doesn't have and just concentrate on what you're supposed to do with your unique gifts and your unique talents. Absolutely. Absolutely. You mentioned young people. And if you live anywhere in the United States, in the month of May 2022, you know that there have been two young people, 18-year-olds, who were on the ledge, and they didn't have a hostage negotiator to talk them off the ledge. Clearly they will focus on themselves. It was all about them, their pain, no escape. As a SWAT, former SWAT team hostage negotiator, had you been in the presence, had you had access to those two 18 year olds what would have been your experience with them? We still don't know what their experience would have been, but what would have been your experience with them? Well, that's a great question. And, and I don't know if I will have a good answer for that. I mean, every, every negotiation was different. Every negotiation was dynamic. Every negotiation was changing. But I, I guess, I mean, if you think about it, if you're talking to me as a hostage negotiator and and not only are you talking to me, but your your house or your building is surrounded by, you know, men and women who are, you know, have all kinds of big guns and all and, and all kinds of stuff like that. And and really, really what we were trying to do as negotiators was to establish a relationship, to establish trust with that person. And and if you think about how we started, and if you think about these people who have committed these horrendous acts that have you know, turned so many families' lives upside down because of what they've done. When we started to negotiate, the person's emotional side, their emotional brain was way up in the air and their rational brain 
was kind of way down in the ground. I, I kind of, I, I try to use the metaphor of like a, uh, a seesaw or a teeter-totter at the park that we all played on when we were younger. So, you know, initially the emotional side way up in the air, the rational side down on the ground. Mm-hmm. Over the course of hours, usually, of letting people vent their emotional energy, we try to get that teeter-totter to equilibrium. And, and we do that by asking them open-ended questions. You know, hey, tell me why we're here. You know, tell me about this experience. Tell me about that. We, we wanted them to talk. We wanted them to burn off that emotional energy to bring that teeter-totter to equilibrium. And then hopefully, after more discussion, more conversations, and again, this takes hours and hours to go through this, you hopefully get it to the point where the person's rational brain is up in the air and their emotional brain is down on the ground. Because we all make better decisions for ourselves when we use our rational brain as opposed to using our emotional brain. So again, we would try to make that connection. We would try to establish trust. We never lied to people we negotiated with. We would have people say, hey, look, I'll, I'll let the hostages go. I'll put the gun down, I'll, whatever it was. But you got to promise me I'm not going to go to jail. And we would have to say to them, well, when you come out, you are going to go to jail, but, and we would try to deflect the conversation to something that was more positive. So we would, over the course of time, try to burn off that emotional energy, get it to where the people were thinking with their rational brain instead of their emotional brain. And that's when we can talk about solutions, making things, you know, coming out, not coming out. And I'll be honest with you, 90% of the time we were effective at getting the barricaded person out, getting the hostages out, getting the person out safely. But about 10% of the time, the person decided they weren't coming out. They decided they weren't going to jail. They decided they were going to take their own life. And while that was always tragic, and I don't mean this to sound callous, I didn't lose any sleep over that. And the reason I didn't was a couple things. One, I did the very, very best I could to help this person end this peacefully. Two, think about this. You're asking me to come into a situation that very well may have been festering for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, and all of a sudden comes to a head on this particular day or or night or time or whatever. And now you ask me, a total stranger who has no understanding of what's going on, to come in, try to understand what's going on, try to develop a relationship, try to establish trust and get this person out safely. That's a pretty tall order for any human being, you know, to do that. But we did it. And we, 90% of the time, we were successful at it. But 10% of the time, those people made the decision. I didn't make the decision. The tactical officers didn't make the decision. They made the decision to end their life. So as much relationship, as much rapport, as much trust as you can establish, that's one thing. It still ultimately comes down to that person, those two people who did these horrible acts. It comes down to their decision on how they want to handle it. And again, I don't know their mental status. I don't know, should they have been on medication? Should they have been hospitalized? I I mean, I I don't know that. I, I don't know enough about it to make that kind of decision. But that's how we did what we did. That's how we tried to intervene and make a positive difference in their lives. But the ultimate decision was the person who was barricaded or the person who had the hostages. Yeah, yeah. So trust, 
building relationships. And at the end of the day, I'm going to add just an opportunity to be seen, to be heard, to be understood. And that's a good point. And that's something I left out. And, and I guess let me let me sort of go back to that. The reason that being a negotiator was so exhausting was that you had to get down in the mud with these people. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, if somebody said to you, you know, if they're yelling and screaming and, you know, cussing up their mother and you say you seem a little upset, you totally missed what they're doing. I mean, they are furious. And you have to go there with them. You have to get down in the mud with them. And it becomes emotionally draining for you. You know, it's it's like, yeah, I've got to, you know, if I'm developing a relationship with you, I've got to be on the same level with you. So I've got to make you understand that, yeah, you are pissed as whatever at your mother. You're not just upset. You're pissed as hell with your mother. Mm-hmm. You're not just upset. So you have to pair it back to them, what they're saying to you, and you have to do it with an emotion. You have to attach an emotion to that, and that emotion better mirror what they're saying. Otherwise, you don't dis- you don't establish that trust because they're like, no, you idiot. That's not what I'm saying. This is what I'm saying. So you really have to kind of get down in the mud, kind of get down in the weeds with them. And by the end of, you know, three, four, five, six hours, you're exhausted because you're you're on that emotional level with them. Yeah. As you mentioned the word mirror, I understand from experts that one of the greatest childhood trauma for all of us, probably safe to say all of us, is to not have had a parent to mirror back to us as children our experiences our emotions. Our parents do the best they know how to do at the time. And if they're five or six kids, you know, they only have so much time. So a lot of us just didn't get that. So the mirroring back to the individual, who they are, understand what's happening is so important. And if we don't get it as a child, we continue to seek it as adults, right? We do. In some strange ways. (laughs) We do. We all have our coping mechanism, right? Thank God it's not to the level of those two 18-year-olds. Are you feeling invisible? Are you sliding through life feeling hopeless and wishing someone would come along and save you? Is it time to stop wishing and time to get busy living life, creating what you desire, living a victorious life of fulfillment? in a community with other compassionate hearts, healing, growing, transforming into your greatest potential. Sign up now for the next course, Growing Through Grief System, a holistic and compassionate approach to limitless growth and healing. Visit www.coachingtotheheart.org to learn more. Celebrate yourself, your life, and your legacy. We are growth seekers, mastering the game of life and creating a different reality beyond grief and loss. So moving out of that a little bit, thank you for that beautiful image, that analogy of 
what it looks like to negotiate and pull someone down off the ledge (laughs) if they desire for that to happen and bring them back to a state of calmness, you know, help them regulate the nervous system. That nervous system is really out of whack. So thank you. Thank you for that imagery, really. So moving into my next question, I know you have four truths and that you are an author of Sustainable Excellence, 10 Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. Could you share with the listeners maybe two or three of those nuggets, those principles? Sure. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's, it's kind of funny because, I mean, when I wrote the book, I didn't have the four truths, but the the book is is really was born out of two conversations I had. One was with a former basketball player that uh, I had coached who had moved to the area where my wife and I live and, and with her fiance. And the four of us had had dinner. And one night after dinner, I remember saying to her, you know, I'm really excited that you're living close and I can watch you find and live your purpose. And she got real quiet for a while. And then she looked at me and she's like, well, coach, what do you think my purpose is? I said, I have no idea what your purpose is, but that's what your life should be about, finding the reason you were put on the face of this earth and then living that reason. And then the second conversation was with a young man who reached out to me uh, on social media and asked me what I thought were the most important things he should learn to not just be successful in his job or in business, but to be successful in life. And I didn't want to give him the, you know, get up early, work hard, help out. And not that those aren't important. They are very important. But I wanted to see if I could go deeper with him. So I spent some time and I, you know, took some notes and I had these 10 thoughts, these 10 ideas, these 10 principles. And then I sent them to him. And then I kind of stepped back and I was like, well, I've got a life story that fits underneath this principle, or I know somebody whose life emulates that principle. So literally during the the three-month period between the time I had my leg amputated and the time I started chemotherapy for the tumors in my lungs, while I was healing, I sat down at the computer every day and I built stories. And they're real stories about real people underneath each of the principles. And And that's how the book came to be. But it's always fun for me as the author because each chapter is a principle. And and so it's fun for me as an author to connect with somebody who's read the book because there's always, or at least it seems like this, there's always one principle that resonates with a particular reader. You know, and the principles are not in any order. Number one isn't any more important than number seven. But they're, you know, somebody will say to me, oh, you know, number three was the one I liked the most, or number eight was the one that, you know, and it and it starts a dialogue. And, and I wrote all 10 of them, but even I have one that resonates with me. And I'll, and I'll share it with you because I've done this probably more times than I care to admit over my life. And the principle is this. Most people think with their fears and their insecurities instead of using their minds. And I know I've done that. I know I've been like, you know, I'm going to do this. Oh, wait a minute. Maybe I'm not smart enough. Maybe I'm not talented enough. What if I fail? What are people going to say about me? That's thinking with our fears and our insecurities. That's not saying, yeah, this is going to be hard. You know, this is going to stretch me. This, you know, maybe I don't have enough talent right now, but I'll learn it. I'll figure it out as I go. And I should do this. And I, and I always tell this to young people, especially if there's something in your heart, something in your soul that you believe you're supposed to do, but it scares you, go ahead and do it. 
Because at the end of your life, the things you're going to regret are not going to be the things you did. They're going to be the things you didn't do. And by then it's going to be too late to go back and do them. So one of the principles is, you know, think with your thinking with your fears and insecurities. There's another one. And, and I, I didn't really touch on this when we were talking a minute ago about the importance of listening. And, and I learned this is when I was a hostage negotiator and not listening to respond, not, you know, Diana, hurry up and say what you're going to say, because I want to get my two cents in, but listening to understand. Mm-hmm. Diana, I, I hear what you're saying. I may agree with you. I may not agree with you. But where are you coming from with that? Let, let's talk about it. now all of a sudden, again, we're developing a, a relationship where we're, you know, I'm trying to understand you. You're trying to help me understand why you feel the way you do. Now we're talking to each other. And when we're talking to each other, we can get things done. When we're screaming at each other, which seems to be what we do a lot today in society, we can't get anything done because I can't hear what you're saying and you can't hear what I'm saying. So the importance of listening is, is a chapter. And I'm sure everybody's like, oh, listening, of course, that's it's really important. But we, do, we it is important, but we don't do a good job of it. We, we listen to respond instead of listening to understand. Uh, there's a chapter in there about love. There's a chapter in there about you are the person that you're looking to become. So you want to do something down the road. You want to become something. And you're like, well, I'm not there yet. You are there. You, you, that person's already inside you. You just need to, to do the steps to get to where that person is. So don't feel like, you know, I want to be this and I'll, I'll never get there. You're already there. You just have to figure out, as I said before, everything you need to be successful in life is already inside you. Figure mm-hmm. out what you need, pull it out, use it to your advantage. So those are just some of the principles that are in the book and, and a little bit about what each of them mean. Yeah, beautiful. So if you don't mind, let's talk a little bit more about with thinking with our fears and insecurities rather than using our minds. When you said that, what came up for me is we are allowing our emotions, the feelings, emotions to drive the car, <laughs> fly the plane as opposed to maintaining some sense of control over our minds. I believe we can train our minds just like a puppy, right? (laughs) If we put our mind to really focusing and moving into a deeper sense of awareness to watch what's happening. What was I thinking? Why did I do that? So anything else you can add to, I always say the, the party, the magic is happening The dance is happening between the mind and the emotions. That's where everything is happening. I think something, then I have this emotion. It moves me into action. Anything else you would say around that? Sure. I I mean, we all all become what we think. You know, so if you're constantly saying, you know, I can't possibly do this, eventually there's going to get to a point where you can't do it because you've told yourself enough times. But the reason this is so hard is sort of a, a an evolutionary uh, part of, of us that our brains are hardwired to avoid pain and discomfort and to seek pleasure. So to the brain, the, the status quo, the way things are right now, it's good. Hey, it's comfortable. It's familiar. Don't mess with it. You know, I like it the way it is. Right. But the only way we're going to grow, the only way we're going to improve, the only way we're going to get better at anything is if we step outside our comfort zones and do things that make us uncomfortable. I used to constantly remind my basketball team when I was coaching that they needed to become comfortable 
with being uncomfortable because it's those uncomfortable things that allow us to stretch, that allow us to grow, that allow us to get better. You know, if, if we just did, and, and so many people do, because you made a great point. So many people just are like, hey, the way things are right now, I'm good. I don't, I don't want to step outside my comfort zone. I, I just like things the way they are. But those are people that live what I call a casual life. And as a result of their kind of unplanned living, their dreams, their goals, their ambitions become a casualty of that unplanned living. And, and I'll, I'm going to make a huge generalization right here, but I've seen a lot of people die, both in my time in law enforcement and certainly my 10 years with cancer. And here's where the generalization comes in. The people that I think or that I've seen that have died what probably you and I would call happy or peaceful deaths seem to be the people who did something with their lives versus the people who go kicking and screaming, you know, who want another month or another year. Those seem to be the people that never did anything with their lives. And now all of a sudden there's an urgency and they want more time to do what they were supposed to do while they were here. Well, sorry, time's up. You had plenty of time. You just chose not to use it to your advantage or to the, I, I, I heard, I was listening to another podcast that you were doing and you talked about service, how important serving our God, serving our fellow man, serving ourselves is. And I totally agree with you. I mean, I think the reason we're all put on the face of the earth is in some form to serve, uh, to, you know, in, to, in that capacity. So, you know, I guess what I'm saying is instead of running from pain, Instead of running from difficulty, what if we did just the opposite? What if we took that pain? What if we took that discomfort and we flipped it inside and we used it and we burned it as fuel and we used it as energy to make us stronger and more resilient individuals? Mm -hmm. I, I, I try to do this every day of my life and I recommend this to everybody I talk to. Do one thing. It doesn't have to be a big thing. Do one thing that makes you nervous, that scares you, that makes you uncomfortable, that's potentially embarrassing every day, whatever it is, something small. Because if you do it every day, when the big things in life hit, and they hit all of us, we lose somebody who's close to us, we lose our job, we find out we have some kind of a, of a health scare. When you do those small things every day, when the big things in life hit, you'll be so much more resilient to handle them because you did those small things every day. Hmm. I, when you said that, I was thinking about, well, what would that be for me? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to I'm going to toss that around. It's I know what it is. But anyway, <laughs> we won't share it right now. <laughs> <laughs> Unplanned living. How does that connect with your four truths? Tell us about the four truths and how the two might work together. Yeah, the four truths are just things that I certainly have developed over my life, but I think they've really kind of come together and I've sort of codified them over these last 10 years of dealing with cancer. I, I have them on a post-it note here in my office. They're one sentence each. So I see them multiple times during the day and they constantly get reinforced in my brain. The first one is you need to control your mind or your mind is going to control you. And I think that's more, I, I learned this when I was 15 years old, I had knee surgery and I went back playing basketball after knee surgery and my brain was putting all kinds of negative thoughts 
into my mind. You know, things like, hey, you know, you're probably a step slower since you had those operations. College coaches aren't going to be interested in recruiting you. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, I'm still playing at an elite level and coaches are still reaching out about the possibility of getting a scholarship to play at their college or university. I learned that I had to change the narrative. I had to flip the switch to something that was positive. And if you think about it, I, 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 everything I've read says, you know, on any given day, we have 60 to 70,000 thoughts that, that pass through our minds, most of which we don't even pay attention to. But your mind can only hold one thought at a time. Why would you want to make that a negative thought? And, and realize that negative thoughts are going to come into your brain. And that, that's okay. Don't, don't get all paranoid about it. But just change that negative to something positive. So that's the controlling your mind part. Okay, so let's pause there, if I may. Let's sure. pause there. Are you able to give the listeners sort of an example? Um, is there a mantra? Is there something that reminds you that your mind is going places you don't want it to go? And then there's something like a snap your finger that brings you back. What is one thing that you do to be able to control the mind? I, I just realized, I, I mean, I've been doing this for so long now that I realized when those negative thoughts, when the you know, that, that sort of, oh, you know, yeah, you got to go to treatment today. It, 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 this is going to be terrible. I, I guess what I look at it is this way. Do I have to go to treatment or do I get to go to treatment? There's a difference. I mean, you you still know, which handle do you want to grab? And you've got to figure out those handles for you. And like I said, negative thoughts are going to come into our minds. It doesn't matter how strong our minds are. They're going to enter our minds. And that's okay. Don't be like, oh, my God, I got a negative thought. That's okay. It's important that you realize that negative thought and then just change it. You know what? I have, I, I have to go to treatment today. It's going to be terrible. You know what? I get to go to treatment today, and treatment is going to be terrible, but it's going to help somebody down the road. Yeah. Now, that's changed the negative into a positive just by, by realizing here's the negative. Now, just change it. Just say something in your mind or say it out loud if it helps you. You know, say that thing. And then, okay, go about your day. Oh, wait a minute. There's another negative thought. Mm, what is it? Mm, okay. Here's how I'm going to change that thought into something positive. It, it's not going to happen overnight. You're, you're not going to be all of a sudden the most positive person in the world overnight. It's going to take some time of realizing that there are negative thoughts in there, but it's also going to be, I have the ability to change that negative into something positive. And the more times you do that, now all of a sudden you're starting to change from the negative, all these negative thoughts to now more positive things in your brain. And again, it goes back to what I said before. We all become what we think. So if you're thinking how thing, how bad things are or you can't do something, eventually things are going to be that bad and you aren't going to be able to do something. But if you realize I just need to change that thought to something positive and all of a sudden now my outlook is different or I may have the ability to do something that I didn't think I could do because you're changing your mind. So, I mean, if, it, if it's a snap of your finger, if you say it out loud, whatever it is, figure out what works for you right. and then just change that, that negative thought to a positive. Okay. So recognize and reframe. Number yes, ma'am. That's okay. good. So you said it in two words. I said it in like 10, 10 sentences. So. <laughs> number two. Number two, uh, we just talked about. Number two is embrace the pain and the difficulty that we all experience in life and use that pain and difficulty to make you a stronger and more resolute individual. And, and I won't reiterate, we, we just talked about, you know, you, 
taking pain, flipping it inside, burning it as fuel, using it as energy, all you know, doing something difficult every day. Though that's what that's how I look at that one. So I, I'm not gonna, in the sake of for the sake of time, I'm not gonna repeat that. Number three, number three is more of a for me a legacy truth. I think it's important regardless of what stage of life we're in, whether we're just starting out or we're kind of middle-aged or we're coming to the end, to think about the end game of our life. And number three is this, what you leave behind is what you weave in the hearts of other people. And, you know, I have actual friends who, you know, they read the obituary in the newspaper or online every day for two reasons. One, to keep themselves humble. And two, to realize that someday somebody's going to be reading their obituary. What do we want people to say about us at our funeral? What are people going to say about us at our funeral? When I found out I, when I had my leg amputated and I found out these tumors in my lungs, I went with my wife to the mortuary and to the cemetery and to the church and I planned my funeral. And because I go on these podcasts and I talk about motivation and, and the need to keep moving forward, I actually got some brushback from people who were like, you know, don't you think planning your funerals kind of defeatist? You know, and I was kind of like, well, the last time I checked, I think we're all going to die. Don't think anybody's working on a cure for life right now. Every one of us is going to die. But not every one of us is going to live. Wow. I heard a Native American Blackfoot proverb years ago that I absolutely love, and I'll share it with you real quick. And it's this. When you were born, you cried, and the world rejoiced. Mm. Live your life. And I think those are the key words. Live your life in such a way so that when you die, the world cries, and you rejoice. Mm. That's what I want. That's what I'm looking for. Oh, I love that. I love yeah. that. You can use it. You can take it. Take I can it. use it. I can use it. You reminded me as you were talking about death. Um, there's no cure for death. If you could live your life forever, would you want to? And I know the answer to that question for myself. No, no. I'm right there with you. No. <laughs> okay. Number four. Number four. Number four, I think is, is pretty self-explanatory. As long as you don't quit, you can never be defeated. And, and the way that resonates with me is this. Someday my pain is going to end. May end through surgery. It may end through some new medication that comes out. Quite frankly, it may end when I die. But if I quit, if I give up, if I give in to pain, then pain will always be a part of my life. So I, I always try to you know, realize that I've got to deal with this pain. And whether it's emotional pain, whether it's mental pain, whether it's physical pain, if I quit that pain, if I give up, if I just, let's say, pain's going to do, and, and I guess maybe let me back up. Everybody has a breaking point when it comes to pain. Everybody does. Mm -hmm. But the, the breaking point for most of us is so much further down the road than we ever think it is. And, and I'll give you two quick stories. One and hang with me because this is a little kind of goofy story when it starts out. There's a, there was a study that I read about back in the 1950s with a professor at Johns Hopkins University. And he did an experiment where he took rats. This is where it kind of gets weird. And he put rats in a tank of water that was over their head. And he wanted to see how long these rats could tread water. And the average rat 
treaded water for about 15 minutes. And just as those rats were going to sink and drown, he reached in, grabbed them, pulled them out, dried them off, and let them rest for a while. Mm -hmm. And then he took the exact same rats and put them back in that exact same tank of water. And the second time around, on average, those rats treaded water for 60 hours. Think about that. First time, 15 minutes. That's all I can do. I'm going to die after 15 minutes. Second time around, 60 hours, which said to me two things. Number one, the importance of hope in our lives. We have to believe that what we're doing now or at some point in the future, may not be next week, may not be next year, may not be 10 years from now, but somewhere in the future, life will get better for me. And the second thing it taught me was just how much more our physical bodies can handle than we ever thought they could. And I have a a friend who actually works with my wife, who's a former Navy SEAL, some of the toughest military men in the world. And the SEALs have what they call their 40% rule, which basically says, if you're at the end of your rope, if you're done, if you can't go on, you're only at 40% of your maximum. And you still have another 60% left to give to yourself. So using those two stories, and I think they kind of dovetail with each other, you know, when you get to that point where I just, I just can't go on, you can go on. You're only at 40% of your maximum. You still have so much more get, to give yourself. But we quit. We quit so much earlier than I think we ever need to quit. But again, my version of quitting and somebody else's version, it's kind of like suffering. You know, I don't compare myself to you. I don't think you should compare yourself to other people in that regard as well. But just remember, when you think you're done, the finish line or the the end is really so much further down the road. Nice, nice. As you were talking, I was thinking about how much I love what I do and how much I love listening to stories like your own, because right in the middle of all that conversation and those stories are other possibilities, which means there's no space for hopelessness. We get in there with our stories or with our coaching, with our therapy, whatever, and show the other person, help them realize other possibilities down that road, right? There's no space for hopelessness. There's so, so much more. Wow, that's beautiful. It's time really passed when you're having fun. Uh, Before we end, maybe take the next, I don't know, 60 seconds and just tell the world what you're up to, how you will have in the show notes of this podcast, right? That information will be out there, your social media, wherever you are, people can find you. But this is your opportunity to share with the world what you're up to and how you're helping the world get through whatever they're getting through. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for allowing me to be on here with you today. It's been a lot of fun for me. And hopefully we made a difference in somebody's life when they hear this. A couple of things that I'm involved in right now. I wrote wrote the book. We talked a little bit about sustainable excellence. It's a book about success. It's a book about how you can be successful. I think I'd like to, and I'm sort of working on another book about another word that begins with S that I think maybe is even more important than success, and that's significance. You know, I mean, success is what we do for ourselves. Significance is what we do for other people. Now, don't get me wrong. I think you can be successful and significant. They're they're not mutually exclusive, 
But an, another book on significance would, would be something I'm thinking about and working on. And then I'm also getting ready to start uh, next week. We're launching a membership program around the Sustainable Excellence book. It's not up yet. It's not online, but hopefully next Wednesday, we're going we're gonna, to uh, launch that. And it, it goes a little bit, not a little bit, it goes a lot deeper into my book and the different chapters and the different principles and things like that, and how you can use those more practical information. I, I, I do it in a video form. Uh, and, and so it, it, it's exciting for me. I'm learning. Hopefully I can pass some of the knowledge that I have on to other people. So those are the two things that I'm kind of working on right now. And give us your website in case someone doesn't want to go looking for it in my show notes. <laughs> sure. Um, the website is motivationalcheck.com. Motivational check is all one word. Motivationalcheck.com. I love that. Yeah. When you talked about the membership, I certainly rose up in my chair because what I realized, my community, the number one struggle that most of the women, primarily women that I work with, is they are experiencing loneliness. No one understands. No one cares. Those are the beliefs that they're creating for themselves. Is that true? I don't know. But there's a huge element of loneliness. And especially as we age, that aloneness, that loneliness, which leads to depression and some other anxiety, other things. So I, too, created a, a membership. It's called the Compassionate Hearts Community, where we come together and just just be. Just be who we are without in a safe space, not being judged for what we say, where we are, what we've done in our past. Just feel good with each other. We feel powerful in each other's space. So I love, love, love memberships. And thank you for reminding me to share mine with the audience. Absolutely. Yeah. So again, thank you so much, Terry Tucker. I really, really appreciate you. And to the listeners, you know my saying, you know, keep on growing and that growth never stops growing and neither should you. I will see you next week, same time, same day. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Growing Through Grief and being part of this loving community of women. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share and spread the word. Let's help all women become richer and more nourished in their heart so that they're able to just keep on rising. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcast player. If you have any questions, comments, or topic ideas, or you would like to be a guest on my show, you can reach me directly at coachingtotheheart.org. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode. In the meantime, keep on growing.